Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by evolutionary biologist Michael Ryan of the University of Texas at Austin, Sexual Selection and the Brain, an Origin of Evolutionary Aesthetics, as part of the 2011 Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. This is a series on the relationship between evolutionary theory, evolutionary biology, and human aesthetics. And some of what I've done is written broadly about the relationship between neural and cognitive and sensory biases and the evolution of what we would call beautiful and elaborate and extreme traits in animals. <clears throat> and then when I thought about giving this talk, I had a choice between doing a very general survey of this idea of the evolution of attractive traits in animals, or on the other hand, talk in a little bit of detail about this one particular system that I concentrate on, the Tungra frogs. And since I'm a real devotee of natural history, I thought it might be instructive to go through a narrative of our studies of the Tungra frogs, not, because, not only because I feel it, it illustrates this relationship between sensory and cognitive and neural biology on the one hand and the evolution of what Darwin referred to as aesthetic preferences in animals. But I also thought, since this is a general audience, it might just be informative to give a narrative about how in this kind of biology, this interface between evolutionary theory and natural history, we approach the, the question, how we approach the questions, how we propose the questions, and how we actually design experiments to answer some of these questions. So I want the subtext of this talk to be a little bit about the scientific approach in this particular field of evolutionary ecology. So we see, uh, we as humans, we see beauty all around us, and there's no question that Beauty is in the eyes, or in the nares, or in the ears of the beholder. So the, I know there's a real philosophical issue. To what degree does beauty reside in the objects that we're admiring versus in how we perceive those objects? But certainly what Darwin tried to under, one of the many things that Darwin tried to understand is that how preferences for beauty came about in animals. So Darwin was accepting the fact that in many animals, there was extreme beauty. And what Darwin was, was interested in, how did this beauty come about? And he was suggesting, as we'll get to in a second, that the animals themselves were generating selection that promoted the evolution of what he at least considered and what most of us would consider beautiful traits. Now, this isn't what Darwin's famous for. Darwin is most famous for proposing his theory of natural selection. And natural selection is a theory by which animals can evolve adaptations for survivorship. And Darwin was very specific about meaning adaptations for survivorship. And the classical example um, of Darwinian natural selection theory are the, are the Galapagos finches. And we know, we know that there's amazing variety in the beaks of Darwin's finch and that this morphological variation is very well tied into ecological spe specialization. Animals with different kinds of beaks specialize on different, on different food items, and this ecological and morphological diversity then eventually promoted the evolution of, Darwin, of, uh, of finches on the Galapagos Islands. 
Now, Darwin was faced with another kind of variation. He talked about this variation in the origin of species. And that is the variation amongst animals in traits that seem to have no function in survivorship. And as Darwin suggested, we're probably maladaptive for survivorship. And Darwin suggested, Darwin used the peacock's tail as his iconic example for the evolution of elaborate traits that appear to counter his hypothesis of natural selection. And Darwin was very clear in stating that the evolution of these elaborate, these, this class of elaborate characters could not be explained by his theory of natural selection. And he proposed a different theory. And he outlined this theory in The Origin. And then he wrote a book in 1872, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, where he, he supported it with great natural history detail this idea of sexual selection. And just to read his quote, Darn said that sexual selection doesn't depend on the struggle for the existence in relation to survivorship, but instead depends on the struggle of his existence between individuals of one sex, usually the males, for possession of the other sex. So sexual selection favors attributes in individuals that doesn't necessarily promote their survivorship, but promotes their ability to obtain mates. And some of these traits will run counter to survivorship. Some of them will be coincident with survivorship, but many of them actually are opposed by natural selection. Now, when Darwin made his argument for natural selection, he relied very heavily on what was known about artificial selection and artificial breeding, especially in England. And Darwin was very interested in pigeons, and he drew upon the literature on artificial breeding of pigeons. So by concentrating on artificial selection in animal breeds that people had experience with, Darwin was able to make the strong argument that selection imposed, in this case, by the artificial breeder can very quickly lead to the evolution of different morphologies and different behaviors. And Darwin pointed out that some artificial selection appeared to be very utilitarian. We could select for cows, for instance, to increase milk yield. But Darwin also pointed out that both in plants and in animals, artificial selectors were selecting for what were aesthetic traits, traits that were attractive to the artificial breeder. And this, in fact, was the target of selection of artificial breeders. Artificial breeders would breed for particular forms in flowers, particular forms in animals, because they were pleasing to the human population. They were pleasing to us. Darwin then later contrasted that with the evolution of what he considered attractive traits in animals. So what we see here is uh, a male and a female fairy wren, a male and a female pheasant, a male and a female guppy, a male and a female extinct um, um, Irish elk, male and a female swordtail, lion, and some butterflies. So what Darwin pointed out is that when he, when he surveyed the animal kingdom, he found again and again examples where there's great differences between the sexes. And he referred to the, the traits that characterize the sexes as sexually dimorphic characters. So this would be a case where there's sexual dichromatism. The male birds 
and the male bird in this case is much brighter than the female. If he were to examine his song, he would find that the songs of the male would be much more complicated than the females. So when Darwin surveyed the animal kingdom, he came across example after example after example where there were these elaborate traits. And Darwin said there's some generalization, generalizations about these traits. First of all, Usually, and certainly not in all cases, there's many ex exceptions, but usually they're more developed, more elaborate in the males than in the females. Usually these traits appeared to have something to do with courtship. And quite often these traits were only, were only presented during the breeding season. So Darwin suggested that Females had a very strong input, and we'll talk about why female choice should be important, but that instead of an artificial breeder selecting on these elaborate characters in domestic populations, that the female of the species was generating selection on males, where the females were actually promoting the evolution of these traits that were maladaptive in the context of natural selection, but that were also much more elaborate. And as Darwin, and Darwin pointed out, females seem to share some aesthetic preferences with humans. And what he meant by that is in many cases, the kinds of traits that were favored under artificial selection seem to be similar to the kinds of traits that evolved under this new theory, this new idea of sexual selection. And Darwin also pointed, and Darwin used the term aesthetic preferences because Darwin did not really propose an explanation as to why females should evolve these preferences. But what he did suggest is that there seemed to be some generalities in the kinds of traits that females found attractive throughout the animal kingdom. And what he pointed out here is, you know, is one example that when males produce sounds that are attractive to females, that are favored by females when they're choosing mates, let's say in a songbird based on song, that the males, of course, are going to make the kinds of sounds that are pleasing to the ears, and I would rephrase that as pleasing to the sensory biology, the neurobiology, and the cognitive biology of the receiver, in this case, the female, and that it's not surprising that similar animals, because they have similar sensory systems, are going to share these similar aesthetic preferences. Now, what, I'm, what I don't want to do is try to make a tie between aesthetic preferences in humans and, and these preferences for extreme traits in animals. But what I am going to suggest is that in many cases, it seems that the way, the form in which these male traits evolve is determined by the internal biology, by sensory biases and neural biases and cognitive biases in the receiver. And this can, can explain an awful lot about the evolution of these, um, of, of these attractive traits. Now, why is it that in most cases, males seem to be competing for females, that males are less likely to mate and females are much more likely to mate. And in many systems, females seem to be able to choose the male with whom they want to mate. Now, unlike his theory of natural selection, when Darwin proposed his theory of sexual selection, most of his colleagues, including Huxley, including Wallace, totally rejected this idea of sexual selection by female choice. And some historians of science, such as Helena Cronin, and, and some biologists, such as Mary Jane Wes Eberhardt, has suggested that 
science in the Victorian age in England wasn't ready to assign to females the powerful selective force that they could actually influence the evolution of these male traits. Well, Trivers wrote an, an influential paper in 1972, which he referred to as his parental investment theory. And Trivers made a very simple point. He said, male, male gametes are small and female gametes are large. This is how you define male versus female. For biologists, none of the other traits are defining characteristics. The only defining trait to tell the difference between a male and a female is the size of the gametes. Size and gametes in almost all sexually reproducing animals are bimodally distributed. There's large ones and there's small ones. There's not a continuous distribution of gamete size. So Trivers said that females put much greater investment in their gametes than males put in their gametes. A result of this is that females are limited in the number of times that they can breed. And he suggested that there was a real premium on females to choose males very carefully to be sure that they're mating with appropriate mates, perhaps genetically superior mates or healthier mates. And therefore, you, there should be very strong selection for females to choose males. Males, on the other hand, in many species can make continuously throughout the reproductive season. And Trivers said there should be selection on males to mate more indiscriminately, but to mate often. And he suggested this in 1972, but the data that, that convinced Trivers of this, and Trivers points, has pointed out that it was Ernst Meyer, the famous evolutionary biologist at Harvard, who alerted Trivers to this paper that was published by Bateman in 1948. Bateman did a very simple exper experiment. He took, female, he took fruit flies. He mated fruit flies zero, one, two, three, or four times. That's a, the number of times they mated is along the x-axis. The uh, number of progeny they had is along the y-axis. What he showed, not surprisingly, is for both for males and the females, if they don't mate, they have no offspring. For the females, once they mate, they have a certain number of offspring, and the females are the closed circles here, and increasing the number of times they mate in this species doesn't have a drag. Character than a 30-year marriage might. You, you really go places in a novel that I, 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 you know, I know things about my characters that I don't really know about the man I've lived with for 25 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you know, one does hope that, that any member of any population that has, who has had sufficient experience, intimate experience of, of others, the kind you can get from a good novel, is that much less likely to want to, say, carpet bomb whole nations. So that, you know, there's, there's, that at the, there's that at the very least. Um, but as a fiction writer, I am really more concerned, primarily concerned, with my character's experience of being themselves and only secondarily concerned with their ideas, to the extent that they have any ideas. Um, I, I sort of grew up with and aspired um, messianically to be um, a writer like Virginia Woolf or James Joyce. And, you know, Clarissa Dalloway doesn't really have ideas. <laughs> Nor does Leopold Bloom. Um, they, they, they carry the novel along just fine without much in the way of an idea in either of their pretty little heads. Um, and I think 
I think a philosopher goes about his or her week work, um, Freudian, um, in the hope of success. And I think that a novelist, if he or she has any sense at all, goes about the work knowing that it will fail. That even the greatest novel isn't life. It's an imitation of life. And, and a few members of the, of the historical population have done an extremely good job of approximating life. But I, I think, I think, and it's part of what's sort of grand and gorgeous to me about, about the novelist's enterprise is we, we know going in that we're not going to create life. We're going, we're, we're, we're going to do the best we can to approximate life. And, um, We are, I think, we novelists, essentially a little bit foolish. I think a philosopher has to be very smart. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's really no room in the realm of philosophy for people who are not dead on killer smart. Um, I think a, no you know, a novelist probably has to be formally intelligent in some way, but a novelist also needs to be a fool for love. Um, you know, a, a, a cockeyed optimist, even if what you write is very, very dark, because by writing a novel, you are asserting that there will be a world full of people who will read it. Um, some of the novels, novelists we, I, I revere, people like Hemingway, Fitzgerald, we're not exactly the brightest bulbs on the Christmas tree. I mean, they, they, their powers are not primarily intellectual powers. Um, and we love them anyway. We probably love them in, in part because, because of that. I, 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 I do think the novelist um, sort of owns and contends with failure and foolishness in ways that I suspect philosophers may not. Is that how you think about your own? so much to say. I won't direct it then. What's most on your mind to say when you hear that? Um, well, first of, um, of all, uh, Harry, I, you realize that we're in complete agreement. I mean that everything you said, I actually agree with. And including, um, you know, I, one thing I, I do hope that was, that was clear that when I uh, spoke about Dick Dickens and, and, and Mr. Gradgrind and said uh, so much for logical positivism, I was being sardonic, that this is obviously, this is what I call flirting dangerously with the genetic fallacy, uh, that uh, you, you, you tuck a uh, philosophical point of view into the character, you manipulate your readers to feel a certain way about that character, and therefore to condemn the point of view that this, this is not kosher, um, this is not the way, you know, this is not a refutation of, of, uh, of logical positivism. It is a, the techniques are different. Uh, there, there's, there's no doubt about it. So when I say, can a writer, can a, does, does a novelist 
can she write philosophically? It depends what you mean by philosophically. Can one do the time-honored and um, proven techniques of philosophy, this very important job of sorting out objective grounds that are compelling to all of us. Can you do that in a novel? No, that's not what the, that's not what the novel is about. And when I try to do it, um, you know, it fails. I always have to be telling myself, you get, you know, you can't, pursue these questions, which are the same questions. So I mean, there's an overlap of questions here, of concerns, of human concerns. And what the novelist can do is to show how these questions uh, that can be clarified and made, with which we can make some progress in philosophy, uh, how those questions are embedded in real human lives and real psyches, uh, that what makes uh, uh, one character, one person drawn to this particular kind of question and this particular kind of position uh, is part of their entire being, but that's irrelevant to the business of philosophy where all of that personal stuff gets, you try to strip it away and just go at it uh, with these rigorous arguments. That's the way to do it. So when I say can, you know, can a novelist be a philosopher while she's writing a novel, uh, yeah, if the novel's going to really stink. <laughs> I mean, that's not, you know, there are two different disciplines. And that is why I think there is this tension, because here are these problems. Um, I think what the novelist can do um, is to shed light on the psychology of philosophy. Philosophers, you know, there's a philosophy of everything. Every domain, you got the philosophy of it. And so we're always taking the meta position. There's math, there's philosophy, <coughs> there's language, there's philosophy of math, of language, uh, philosophy of art, um, uh, political philosophy. There's also, I think, one can, one can do the metagame on philosophy. There is a psychology of philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and that there are different intuitions that are in play and that they have to do with the whole person. And that is something that, for me, as someone who occupies this terribly uncomfortable mm. middle ground, uh, knowing how one is ought to think about philosophy and wanting to embed them in in novels, that is where I feel that I can shed some light, at least for me. Um, what is it about the whole person uh, that, that is arriving at this kind of, there are so many philosophical problems. Why are some of us drawn to one sort rather than the other? Why, you know, why did I want to do philosophy of math or philosophy of science and not, and not uh, existentialism? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, so obviously that had something to do with me. And where are these deep intuitions that are guiding our philosophical uh, orientations? Even when we're connected and we're all analytic philosophers. I mean, you listen to, say, Dan Dennett and Tom Nagel talk about the hard problem of consciousness. They're both, in some sense, analytic philosophers. There is no agreement. There is no, the orientations are so different. The way they lay out the facts are so different. Um, where there's something bigger, there's the person. And that is something that you can get at in a novel and that I think sheds some light on the psychology of philosophy, but not, on, not so much on philosophy itself. Philosophy is to be done the way it's taught in philosophy departments. Hmm. Carrie, do you want to? 
Well, I think that Rebecca is right. We are very much in agreement. Uh, I'll say something about what Michael said. Um, it's true that the novelist can never actually get life on the page. He gets, at best, he gets a representation of life. That's what Plato said. It's a matter of seeing shadows on the wall. Uh, philosophy tries to see the real thing. Uh, it's not satisfied with a representation. It wants to get at the essence. It wants to get at the heart of the matter. It wants to get reality as it really is. Um, you talk about novelists being bound to fail. Uh, the history of philosophy will <laughs> match, match you any time. Uh, but it's not all failure. I mean, uh, some novels are better than others. Some representations are closer to the truth than others. And some philosophical systems and, and, and uh, accounts are more satisfactory than, than others, more adequate, more complete, complex, and clear. So there's, I don't, know if it, I don't know if it's a matter of progress exactly, but there is a difference between good and bad. Uh, we're not all equally failures. Um, now, it's true what Rebecca said, that no two philosophers have quite the same points of view. Um, that's probably true of novelists as well. Um, novelists are just as different among themselves as philosophers are. We all start with temperaments and impulses and inclinations and uh, needs and uh, tendencies that shape and, and, and determine how we approach things, how we feel about things, what satisfies us, what we hope will satisfy us. Um, and we work with that initial equipment or point of view. Um, what I said before, I, th I think I'll repeat it, that um, what the novelist provides is a, is a certain raw material for philosophy. Uh, the novelist can explore and in, illuminate the psychology of an intellectual. Um, and the philosopher can take that illumination, take the, the representation of philosophical thought that is provided by the novelist, and try to make some fuller sense out of it, try to make some more elaborate and complete, adequate and satisfying understanding of it. Um, I think, unfortunately, the three of us are so much in agreement that I don't know <laughs> whether well, it's worthwhile for us to go everyone, on. Everyone comes to these things in hope of a, hopes of a fight. Surely, we well, that's what we're going to fight about. We're trained that way. I mean, that's what we're paid for. Uh, well, you're not, perhaps, but <laughs> Rebecca and I are certainly. We're, glad, we're supposed yes. to be certainly. <laughs> well, you know, I... Quick, I let, let me let me think of oh, some yeah. really loathsome opinion that will just shock and revile you. No, sorry. <laughs> Save it for if later. If you come up with yeah. something, just raise your hand. Oh, I mean, um, well, I'll, 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 I'll say one thing. You yeah. know, the, the um, you know, I don't think that, um, I agree with you that I do think that novels um, develop empathy. I do. And I think that um, you can actually, um, well, my, my husband, Stephen Pinker, is about to come out with a fantastic book in October that will change the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, for the better? Uh, for the better, yes. So much for the better. Oh, yes. that, oh that's a relief. <laughs> so much. It's going to make it worse? In fact, it's called, I'm terrible, I'm sorry, but it's called The Better Angels of Our Nature, um, and, it, and it's about the decline of violence and how we are getting better. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of surprising results. It's got about a hundred graphs 
proving. Uh, massive amount of empirical data proving that we are getting better in many ways uh, morally. I mean, our wars are less, less violent, homicide rates, domestic violence, any way you think about it. There, there's, we're, there, there's sources, and not, not that human nature is changing. Of course, human nature doesn't change, but it's that there monopolists. <laughs> well, here's the thing. <laughs> One of the most um, cheering for me graphs that he showed me was what happened um, in Europe when the Enlightenment uh, happened, and where at, as the ideas of the Enlightenment spread from from uh, the Netherlands to England. Uh, as literacy rates spread, um, as the novel takes off, homicide rates drop. I mean, it's 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 kind of stunning, um, and it's uh, it's it's a it's a vindication of the things that all of us up here believe in, and reason, uh, and progress, and uh, and the. The empathetic lessons of, of of literature, and that uh, the more we realize the humanity of the other, our behavior actually changes, our intuitions change. Um, but I do think also that some imaginative literature, I agree with Plato, that some of it is very bad for us, and that when um, you know that there are stereotypical portrayals of of characters, you know, I pointed to to uh, Dickens, a great novelist, you know, but Fagin, uh, you know, and, and other things that um, uh, as, as, as our moral sensibilities develop, uh, become offensive to us. Uh, you know, the, what was it, the old Amos and Andy shows that used to be on television, which I thought were hilarious as a little kid. Um, you know, I think if I watch them now, my flesh would crawl. So that, you know, again, there's a sort of development, but some, sometimes we're worked up into not very good, uh, because as I, as I said, you know, normative emotions without reason, without the sort of work that moral philosophy does is, is, is blind. Uh, but working together, good thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. I certainly agree that uh, reading novels it, it, it enhances one's empathy. It gives one a, an understanding of other people's lives and an appreciation of what it means to live lives like that. And it's a very valuable constituent in the development, the moral development of a human being. Um, I look forward to reading Stephen's book. I hope it isn't swept away by the latest news. Uh, the, the Enlightenment was followed shortly by the reign of terror. Um, I'm not convinced that um, we're better. Maybe we are, I haven't seen the data. Um, but we've done a lot of awfully bad things lately and don't show any signs of, of determining to, to, to give up doing them. Uh, there are these terrible stories about the commandant of Auschwitz listening to Mozart in the evening. Uh, one would think that listening to Mozart would, would smooth a person's soul. It didn't help in his case. Um, so I don't know whether human beings are getting better, but as I say, I'll, I'll wait, wait to look at the data. Um, but so far as empathy is concerned, there's no question in my mind that novels enhance a person's empathy. That's, what, that's, what they're for. that's why we read them when, they're young, well, when we're young. As for um, Michael's thought uh, that I left out in my earlier remarks, that the novel 
characters in a novel don't have any ideas or may not have any ideas. That may be true. They may not have an idea in their heads, but they represent ideas. They display ideas. And professors of literature will call our attention to that when they discuss these characters in novels and point out in what ways they are displaying or manifesting, representing a point of view or a thought or, a, or an idea. So I think that it, it's very difficult for a representation of a human being to any full degree can avoid representing the intellectual side of life, which is inescapable. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Though I, I do find that um, academics and, and, well, the occasional critic will point out things in my books that got by me. Does that happen to you too? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I tend, I, I, I've just gone over with smiling. I'm glad you caught that. But what do you make? <laughs> yes. What do you make of that? That they've missed the point, or that they no, that no, you've missed I, the point? No, I think I think that I know for me that the writing of a novel is a sort of intricate combination of intention and intuition. There are things I do for a reason I could explain to you, and there are things I do. There are patterns I follow that just felt right for for some reason or other. And I think what we're, I know what I'm trying to do as a novelist by going through draft after draft after draft uh, is trying to write books that are a little smarter than I am and a little deeper than I am. You're actually mm -hmm. trying to pull something up out of your, I don't know, unconscious, out of linoleum, I don't know where it, it <laughs> resides. Uh, but in a sense, you're trying to sort of get, a, get ahead of yourself as a, as a novelist. Mm -hmm. and, and uh, you want to maintain, I think, a certain very queasy mix of control and, and, and recklessness. And it is why, in my opinion, on, on, in certain ways, the, the, the writer is a, is a very reliable authority on his or her own work. And in other ways, not so much. Yes, as Plato, of course, pointed out, you know, that you, you know, he, he loved to do this sort of thing, asking the poet, uh, what did you mean by this brilliant yeah. uh, and getting a you know really dumb answer? But I have this uh, view, you know what when I first began and it's so different uh, the two kinds of writings of mm -hmm. of um, uh, philosophy and uh, and literature it feels so different in one's head uh, where one you have to give free reign to your this unconscious and being led and this kind of recklessness and wildness and you know that's not what you're going for in analytic philosophy. Right. Um, and we really want the argument to be as clear as possible and trying to foresee every gap that any, you know, any possible uh, presupposition that you're, that you're missing here. So it's so very different. But, <clears throat> you know, that when I was a very young novelist and people would tell me what they got out of my novel, I would think, what? I mean, <laughs> where did you get this? And I was, you know, sometimes quite horrified. And... Um, and, and I remember one particular, I have a novel called The Dark Sister, and it, uh, it features William James, one of my great heroes, and, uh, um, and Henry James, also a hero. And uh, there is a, but there's a scene where the father, who's a very attractive man and an artist, very artistic and flamboyant, goes into the bedroom, he's, he's leaving his wife and his child, and he goes into the bedroom of his little daughter, um, and, um, and, and says goodbye, and, and then I just leave them there, and I say, you know, and then he leaves 15 minutes later. And then uh, one of my friends said to me, 
when she, she said, oh my God, Rebecca, you know, you've gotten so daring. You're, you're dealing with incest. I thought, oh my God, oh. never. That's, it, it didn't occur to me that that's what happened yeah, right. during those yeah, 15, 15 minutes. minutes. I just, you know, I wanted to leave them their privacy. And that is when I, so I thought about this a, a great deal because I was sort of, oh my God, I was scandalized that somebody could even think that I would write things of that. Anyway, then I thought, well, this is, this is what it's all about. And uh, this notion of you are trying to create an experience. You have to leave, it has to be porous enough that there has to, that the reader has to be able to bring in their own psyche, their own experience, their own history, their own sick mind, in the case of my friend, <laughs> you know, and create this experience, you know, and, and that's so different. Um, there are big experiences from reading philosophy. I certainly, get huge experiences at reading Spinoza, but it's not, it's not the same sort of thing, my own personalities and being brought into it in that way. So the surprises that come at one as a novelist, what people make of your work, I think are much bigger. Uh, than what happens with, with philosophy. Unpleasant surprises as well as the night. Uh, and pleasant, yes. There's no question that a good novelist can teach us things that it's important for us to know. Uh, maybe the greatest novelist that I know about is Tolstoy, and War and Peace is a fantastic book. It's, it's incomparable. And Tolstoy has this enormously brilliant capacity to, in two or three sentences, create a character, create a scene where you feel that you really are there. You know this person. You know what it's like to be there. Uh, and in his accounts of, of the course of events that, with which he deals, I think he really, he really teaches us something, or teaches me something about the nature of history and about the, the, the meaning of human life. So I don't, I don't have any question that a, a novelist, a good novelist at any rate, can be very instructive. Uh, not only in, in, in enhancing our empathy, but in actually giving us ideas, enabling us to understand things that we would otherwise uh, aren't uh, so ready to understand. Oh, and I, 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 think, I think one of the sort of less widely publicized purposes of, of the novel is um, to act as a witness to its times. We are, we, are, we are, to some extent, recording a certain highly subjective version of history. And if you wanted to know about 19th century Russia, you would do well to read histories and biographies and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky because the, the, you wouldn't want to omit either of them. Because, but the novelists are setting down what it was like to, to be alive then. Wolf's, Wolf's London, Joyce's, Joyce's Dublin, those would, be, those would be lost unless they were recorded by, by Yeah, by and even very bad novelists can sometimes give you that, you know, of, uh, I've read, um, when, I, when I'm trying to immerse myself in some uh, historical period in order to write about it, I often find um, the bad novelists to be, mm. if you can stomach, mm. you know, the bad prose, uh, that they can, they can be very good witnesses of, of their time. Um, sometimes because they're the lack of genius, um, there's, there's less of them in it and, and more of, 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 mm. of, what, uh, of what's happening around them. And I think hack, hack novelists actually prefer doing the research to yeah. doing the writing. So, so they're, they're, exactly. they're, they're more, they're more yeah. fact exactly. they're more facty. Exactly. Often don't digest all the research, but it's very good. I mean, you, yeah. you can get it. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. It strikes me that when I hear us all, you, you all, us all talking about the novel in these ways, 
what we're talking about are a certain kind of novel. And there seems to be a category of novel that by its very textual difficulty, its aesthetic complexity, resists us as a reader, doesn't court our empathy. Um, you could think of some of the novels in the last 50 years that have been very uh, off-puttingly self-conscious. David Foster Wallace is one uh, possible example. John Barth, Kathy Acker. Um, you know, then Finnegan's Wake. Do we read Joyce this way in his most experimental moments? Are we talking about novels in a way that excludes this, uh, this edge of pushing the boundaries of what language on the page can do? Um, that's a very, really very good question. And uh, um, I, I'm, for example, um, uh, quite um, an admirer of Borges. Um, Borges is doing something really quite different. Uh, you, you're, it's not, you're not involved with the characters in the, in the same right. way. You know, that this is a kind of, um, uh, I mean, this is, it really is very, very intellectual. And sometimes what they're doing, you know, postmodern is, you know, looking at the form of the novel itself, at the conventions, making us aware of them by subverting them. Um, and it is, uh, you know, it's, it's a different sort of uh, um, game that they're playing. Um, I feel when I read those um, much more as I do when I'm reading philosophy. Right, right. Um, that I'm, I'm distanced from them. Um, I'm evaluating them. I, I find them intellectually engaging or not. <clears throat> but it's, um, you know, it's a different kind of thing. <clears throat> you know, of course, what if one of the conventions of the novel that they're subverting is that the novel tries to hide the fact that this is artificial right. and it's sweeping you up into life mm -hmm. and you're there. And, uh, and, and, and that is uh, very, very difficult to do. Um, and what they're, they're doing is, you know, they're pointing, it's, it's, a, they're, they're, it's an intellectual examination of the underpinnings of what's going on there uh, and producing fiction of this sort by, 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 by making us aware of this. It's interesting, but of course it can't have the same impact uh, because what they're subverting is precisely the thing that sweeps you into the world of, of, of the novel and gives you that, that impact. Um, so yes, it's a, it's a, but they, you know, they're interesting. I love Gertrude Stein also. I mean, I mm -hmm. find her fascinating. Um, and uh, uh, so I, you know, there are people who are doing this that I find, but it's a different, it's a different experience um, uh, of reading it. Insofar as the novel loses its immediacy, it does undermine its function, it seems to me, because the purpose of it, at least one of the main purposes of it, is to bring you closer to life. And if it puts a barrier between you and the perception of the experience of life, then it's lost part of its function. But the, the immediacy of something is partly, a partly uh, due to us and not only due to the, to the, to the object. Um, when I read a novel in a foreign language, I am kept at a distance from what's going on. But that's because I don't understand the language well enough. If I understood the language better, it. I would find the, the vividness and the immediacy that, I, that I'm looking for in the novel. And I think the same thing may be true of, of, a, of an experimental writer. Um, may not, because the experiment may be a failure, but it may be possible that uh, 
a different way of using the language uh, succeeds in producing the kind of immediacy that the novelist is after once the reader is trained to receive it. Mm -hmm. some, some writers actually manage to do both. Nabokov, I think, yes. does yeah. both. Yeah. Oh man, what a genius. I mean, he's just amazing. So you can read it you know, just at the level of the characters. <coughs> You know, be swept into this story of uh, you know Lolita. There's an entire meta level going on there, and um, you know, and, and and then you can read it on that level, um, and 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 a whole discourse on the conventions of the novel. And he's playing, you know, he's playing with us. I mean, he's a he's a chess player, and he is playing chess with us, and he's making his moves. And um, but you can read it, you know, and you can make a, a a good movie out of it because there's enough going on. At, at that other level, that to me seems to me to be, uh, you know, that's, the achievement. Oh, yeah. yeah, this is this is this is really quite something. Yeah. Well, I, I think we we who write fiction, um, or at least American fiction, um, are in a period in which it's sort of assumed that our books must be reader friendly in some yeah. in, in in some way. Every single person you mentioned is dead. Yeah. Blessing son, uh, David Foster Wallace. Most people John are dead, Barth too. No, John Barth is alive. He's alive. John Barth is alive. All right, all right. He just, but, he just but, wrote to but, me. I know. Okay, <laughs> okay no, thank God. But, but you know what I mean? No, no spray shape. He was worse. You weren't. Yes, right. You could just as easily have, have, have cited as, as many writers in their 20s and 30s, except who would that be? Um, yeah. Which I, by which I don't mean. But, um, let me say this. When I, when I, at the beginning, I teach writing, and at the beginning of the semester, um, we talk about some of the, the, the big questions, like, like what is fiction, what is its purpose in the world, um, why do you want to do it, and, and who is it for? Yeah. Which often elicits the response, I, I write for myself, to which I generally <laughs> reply, I understand, and every <laughs> night, I go home and make a big elaborate cake and eat it all by myself. <laughs> by, by which I mean to imply that a work of fiction is uh, the first half of a relationship between the writer and the reader, though separated in time and space. There is something happening between the writer and reader that is complicated and funny and tragic and sexy and all sorts of things, um, but then when you read when when I when I read um, some European writers like like uh, a, a great Hungarian writer probably uh, probably only read by me, Peter Esterhazy, um, oh, yeah. you know, of yeah, who clearly feels no compunction whatsoever. Yeah. To seduce you in, yeah. it, it, I, I, I'm reminded sometimes that that assertion is actually sort of local and, and temporal, and something that we may actually find ourselves evolving back out of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kafka, for example. Yeah. I don't. He, who was he writing for? And you know, and he, of course, he wanted it all burned. Um, and it was. I, I don't know that he had anybody in mind. I mean, he would read to his friends. Uh, and then wanted it all burned. So I think you know it, it, it varies, but I agree with you. I think that one of the most, um, I, I feel so grateful to be able to be a novelist and to have what I consider one of the most intimate relationships with 
strangers, mm. you know, who are reading me. I, I wish they were more such strangers, but, <laughs> <laughs> but any strangers who are having this intimate relationship with something that is somehow connected to, with me, and I agree with you that sometimes seems a little precarious how connected it is with me, these characters that come out. But, you know, it's, it's, it's such a, a profound relationship, and you know, I agree. I agree with you. I, I think we write these things because, you know, Henry James had said um, he thought that you know the source of his his writing and the source, I think, he's, of his genius. He wrote to a young man, um, is his uh, profound loneliness, hmm. and um, and you know that resonated very very deeply with me. That it's very very hard to talk to real people. I'm always, I'm always presented with their opacity, right. um, but my characters let me in. I know who they are, and then they let other people in. And so, by this kind of chain, there's this connection uh, with people, and uh, it's a it's a it's a tremendous privilege. Uh, it's interesting. The question of whom we are writing for. I don't think it arises in philosophy. I, I never think of that. Mm. Yeah. And, and my answer to the question would inevitably be I write for myself. Mm -hmm. When I write something in philosophy, I'm trying to clarify my ideas. I try to write clearly and, and in an accessible way because I do hope to be read. But, but the activity is not essentially communicative. It's, it's, it's an activity of trying to find out what I think. It's trying to find out who I am, what my ideas are, what my mind is like. And um, I don't have anybody else in mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very European. That's so? I think. Well, I, I, again, I risk of repeating myself. I, I, I just think that we writers who live and work in America and are Americans um, are are trying to charm and seduce readers in, in, in a way that hasn't always been the case in literature, and well, isn't even the case in. Is it too vulgar to point out that you're also trying to sell your work? No, it, it's actually quite to the point. I, I, think, I think part of what's in the back of our minds is the idea that there are about 75 readers left. And, <laughs> and so the whole idea of, of, of oneself as, as, a, as, a, as an eminence and, 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 and someone, okay, approach me if you dare, you, you figure you're going you're gonna to be sitting in, a, in, a, in an empty room. <laughs> Why, why, no one seems to want to rise to the challenge of me. I, I think this um, raises for me the, the, an institutional question which I find fascinating when I think about your career, uh, the life that you've built for yourself. The fact is that philosophers have a home, a professional home in the institution, in academia, and so um, the requirement that you reach that reader for practical concerns, uh, the readers you want to, uh, to, to have access to your thought as a philosopher are within those walls primarily. Um, but the fiction writer, because for a long time we have not had a university home for the writer. Now that is changing and I wonder whether that will change the novel. Um, there's a great book, uh, my students will know that I talk about this book with some frequency. Mark McGurl wrote a, a, a book called The Program Era, which argues that the, the truly novel development in uh, literary production since 
World War II is the incorporation of the writer into the university as an institution. And, you know, my own work on contemporary writers, I've been interviewing some very, very, very minor writers to find out what happens to their careers after they publish in fairly well-known venues. And what you find is that either they have given up writing uh, because they needed to make a living, and sometimes that living is made teaching writing. Other times it is made uh, working in advertising or wherever. Um, so that's one outcome. And the other outcome is that they get lodged in a university productively enough, um, lucratively enough, that they no longer need to live off their writing. And then they can be experimental, or they can be uh, a little on the outside of the market. So it, you know, does that change uh, where American writers will be able to go experimentally? So that's, that's one thing that this train of thought makes me think about. Um, but I also want to say, and uh, this is just before we open up the floor, because I am going to do that shortly, um, is that uh, if those novels that push you away are cognitively, analytically provocative, uh, it may be that one would have to modulate one's claims about the genre as a whole in relation to philosophy, to the kinds of thought, Harry, that you insist need to be done in this dialectical manner, that there may be more thought of a rigorous uh, dialectical quality going on in some kinds of novels, but we're just not talking uh, about those novels so much. Um, so Another aspect of the institutionalization of, of, of creative literature is there are a lot of prizes for writers. Maybe not enough. But, but <laughs> All writers should get prizes. <laughs> there are plenty of prizes just for showing up. I don't know. If, I don't know if you have that in mind when, when when you write a novel that it's possibly a Pulitzer Prize winner or God forbid a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah, that's really the kiss of death. But um, it's you know, oh, what a terrible <laughs> thing that would be. <laughs> there, there's a, there's another excellent book out, which I would just recommend to anyone, which is James English's um, book. Now I'm gonna. Uh, the, uh, the, the Economy of Prestige, I think it's called, and it's about literary prizes. And it's very convincing on this point that, that the prize, um, like the university, is a very powerful institution now um, for the production of literary visibility. And that, of course, has its payoff in marketability. But you're, you're positing that there are, there are, there are quite possibly very, um, challenging and arcane and fabulous, but, but not so charming books out there that we're just not aware of. That we're, we're, it's, not, it's not that they don't, they're not being written, it's that we're not reading them. Yeah, I think it's partly that we're not reading them. You know, I would even take an example of a book that's not unknown by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's famous, but I think it's now rarely read, and that's Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. Mm. The talkiness of that book, the way that um, Hans Kostorp and his uh, friends up on the mountain in the sanatorium, the- Sutton Breeny. Sutton Breeny, thank you. I, the name had escaped me. Um, these charming characters are not quite charming enough, I think, for today's <laughs> readers. Um, I, I'm quite fond of them, but 
But I'm, uh, when you try to teach them in, in classes, friends I have who, who use that novel on their syllabi, it's kind of a hard sell. And I think, so there are, even, there are novels like this that in their day were found to be charming enough. I tried to read The Magic Mountain re re recently. I got through it, but with considerable pain. Even you, a philosopher, that's surprising. Yeah, you know, I, well, I, I, I read it in college and I, um, I loved it. So it, it was, um, but there were different kinds of difficult novels. Yeah, right, that's that not a difficult are, stylistic yes, novel. Yes, not, it's, you know, yeah. so there are the, the deliberately distancing novels um, that are taking the tricks of the trade um, and, and, and making, you know, kind of meta-fiction out of them, showing, you know, they are about, about the making of fiction. And they are, you know, they are meant to be distancing. And you, you know, you find them fascinating or, or you don't. I think we writers find them more fascinating than other people, you know, because, uh, yeah, we're very aware of these, of these tricks yeah. and, it's, and it's interesting to, to watch them being played with. Then there are the ideas, you know, of, that I have great fondness for that, uh, that take, <gasps> I'm losing my voice, clearly. I haven't tried. Oh, thank you. Um, they take, um, you know, difficult ideas and, um, you know, like the Magic Mountain. And I, and I guess, you know, I have tried to produce ideas, uh, uh, books that have, uh, you know, that have ideas in them, or at least that have characters for whom ideas really matter. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in such characters. As you well know, you have to be very interested in your characters. You've got to inhabit these creatures for a long time, and if they bore you, um, you know, that's not a good way to start in a novel. They have to, uh, for, for me, it's extremely interest, I I easy to come up with plots. I think I come up with three plots a day. Mm -hmm. Something will happen, somebody will say, uh, say something to me, and it's like, yeah, that, that, that could be a short story, that could be a novel. But um, until a character somehow embodies this thing, and a character in whose inner life I want to be, um, it's not going to take hold. And for me, characters who are interesting are characters who have a passion for ideas. I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I think such people are interesting. Um, and I think, you know, I've, uh, from the very beginning of my career, I felt, you know, that to make the distinction between passions on the one hand and reason on the other was a, was a, was a, was a false dichotomy. Reason is a passion. The passion for reason yes. is a very yeah. important passion, and I like characters of that sort. It means that, you know, ideas are going to enter into, into, into my novels because that's what my characters are thinking about because that's the only way I can make my characters interesting to me. Um, but, you know, as I said yesterday, you know, if it's just the brutal onslaught, onslaught of pure ideas without the other stuff, uh, you, lose, you lose your readers. So there has to be this balance. But I, I don't know. I'm, I keep very uh, oblivious to uh, purposely to what's going on in contemporary fiction. I don't want to be influenced. I have what I want to do. Um, uh, that's very good news. That's all that I care about. I know what I want to do. I know the kind of books that interest me. And I'm very, uh, 
you know, it takes a little while for a book to even reach me that, oh, this is the new thing, this is right. the great sensation. And sometimes I'll read it and sometimes I don't, but I deliberately keep a distance. I, I don't want to know. I think a self-conscious preoccupation with methodology and technique is a sign of the, you're getting close to the end of the line. Mm -hmm. it's a de it represents a deterioration of the art. Mm -hmm. You don't know how to do it anymore, so you're trying to figure out how it's done. Mm -hmm. I love to be influenced. I, re I, 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 I read a ton of contemporary fiction. Mm -hmm. um, partly for the sense of company. Yeah. For, mm -hmm. the, for the sense of, oh, right, there's some, there are other people out there doing that this too. I feel a little less like a crackpot um, sealed up in a wall somewhere. Um, and I, act, I actually like to be influenced by, 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 li, by living writers. I, 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 I've, grown, I've grown out of my period in which I, I simply imitated the writers I loved. And um, now I feel like I sort of try to take them in. And if they knock me around a little bit and change me around a little bit, it strikes me that that's a very interesting and important feature of, of creative writing, the, the, the loneliness of the writer, the solitary character of his position in the world, and his need for finding some antidote to loneliness, to finding, establishing connections, establishing relationships, feeling part of a, part of a, part of a group. Yeah, yeah. Philosophers don't have that. I, I don't think loneliness is necessarily a feature of philosophy, because it is a profession. We have colleagues, we have a history, we have books about us and books, you know, courses that are, we have to teach and so on. So uh, society is built into the activity mm -hmm. in a way in which it's not built into the activity of, of creative writing. And I, I think that must make a big difference. I, I don't really know just how a novelist solves the problem of loneliness. You talked about it a little bit, but there must be more to say about it than that. Um, it, it, I really struggle with it. I am not by nature such a solitary person. Um, I just seem to want to do this thing that involves being alone most of the days. Um, which is one of the reasons I live in the very steamy heart of New York City. Mm -hmm. And if we left New York City, it would have to be for like Tokyo. <laughs> because, because I depend so completely at the end of my writing day, on running out of my studio and being amid the biggest, gaudiest, craziest world possible. And, you know, it's, it's New York. There's people with their hair on fire. There's people bleeding tears <laughs> down the street. Um, and I, I, I it, in a little house in the country, I would be dead in about three weeks. <laughs> we don't want you to be dead, Michael. And so I feel like we should invite some company into our Discussion. I just ought to say yeah, that um, go ahead. I love to be alone. <laughs> um, and I am, uh, yes, we have a, a place at Cape Cod, and uh, we don't see another soul, and it just suits me. But you were trained fine. as a philosopher. But I was trained <laughs> as a philosopher, are. yes, yeah. yes. Um, are there questions? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, if you would, please. Thank you. There's a nice consensus, but maybe it's an unhappy one, um, since none of you have really argued with each other. I know. I'm so sorry to disappoint uh, anyone. Yeah. Anyone came hoping for a fight? Um, okay. I'll, I'll fight. I'll fight with you privately. Out. <laughs> so, so uh, let me go back to the the question that the the brief that you all had today about whether a a novelist can write philosophically, and um, you all touched on what seemed to me relatively superficial 
aspects of philosophy and oh, of we'll novel try. writing, not, not in general, <laughs> but with respect to this question. So of course philosophy needs to be systematic, clear, concise, and so on, and novels, novelists can, can be open-ended, ambiguous, pointing at things rather than describing them uh, perspicuously. So, so what is the what is the in principle difference between writing philosophically and writing a novel or writing as a novelist? And I think it might be this, and I'm just proposing this so you can disagree with me. It's that when a philosopher is trying to portray a world, whether it's a metaphysical proposition about what exists, describe the self, describe the soul, describe uh, what love is, when a philosopher is doing that, a philosopher has to appeal to reasons has to give us reasons for accepting that philosopher's view in that article or in that book. Whereas a novelist can appeal to reasons, but a novelist can also, as Rebecca Goldstein very nicely described, a novelist has all these, you know, call them non-cognitive resources. So the name grad grind, right? We know that character is going to be doer, right? Becky Sharp, Pecksniff, right? Mr. Biswas in, in Nightfalls, right? Always Mr., right? Um, all those disgust elicitors that are introduced around Fagin so that we see him not only as um, physically filthy but morally filthy in some sense as well, right? Or we're supposed to, right? Now, if a philosopher used these sort of rhetorical devices to persuade us of his or her view, we'd say, for the most part, the philosopher's cheating, not writing as a philosopher. For a novelist to use all these effects, and think about filmmakers who show the innocent person always as beautiful, and the dangerous, devious person is not terribly, terribly physically attractive, that kind of thing, right? Um, so if a novelist or an artist in general uses these devices, we say, go ahead, you're allowed. So you can portray the, the world that you're trying to get us to uh, endorse or accept using any means possible as an artist. And philosophers just aren't allowed to do that if they're speaking as philosophers. Well, that's what's meant by saying that philosophy has to conduct an inquiry in a dialectical mode with arguments and reasons right. and justifications and <coughs> proofs and, and counterexamples and that sort of thing. Um, it's true that one of the things about fiction that distinguishes it from philosophy is the writer of fiction is just making it up. He doesn't have to prove it. It doesn't have to be true in any overt sense. It has to have a kind of inner truth. It has to be authentic. It has to represent what it's representing accurately. But for the rest, the, the novelist is free to invent Mr. Gradgrind and Becky Sharp and anybody else he wants. Whereas, as you say, a philosopher isn't allowed to do that. We're supposed to prove things. We're supposed to at least give justifications and reasons for what we're doing. So I, I completely agree with you. I think that was pretty much the substance of oh, I what I was trying I think to say. Stink. I, Good, thank you. I want you to come up here now. <laughs> but I actually, I would like to actually disagree with Harry. Um, but I don't think that novelists are just making it up. I think that novels are um, a source of discovering. Um, and I find it quite fascinating that they can be, um, but that there are, I, I loved what you said about that, you know, when, you're, when you're a novelist, you're being smarter than you really are, and this, this, is, this is true. Uh, somehow, I think there's something very interesting that goes on, and I, again, because I do 
both of the sorts of different yeah. writings, and I, I feel how different it is to be doing them. But you are pulled out of yourself um, when you're when you're writing a novel. You are not inhabiting yourself uh, in the way that you normally do. Even in reading a novel, you are not. Something very interesting is going on uh, in regard to personal identity, um, and. Um, I think it puts one in the way of large truths of um, uh, being, when, when you are a novelist, I mean, pulled out in this very powerful way that you, and you're inhabiting other people, and it puts you in a way of being able to see things about human nature that you wouldn't see otherwise. I mean, it's, I've, I've made discoveries while I'm writing philosophy. In the very first novel I wrote, The, the, the Mind-Body Problem, um, so this, uh, the editor, when he bought it, he said, um, you know, there's a, a problem I have with this character. She's so beautiful, and she's so bright, and she's so miserable. Um, you know, what's her problem? And I, and I, thought, I thought about, you know, well, what is Renee Foyer's problem? Why is she? She doesn't feel like she matters. And um, because of trying to solve the problem of Renee and why she felt this way, I came up with this whole thing about the mattering map, the will to matter, the mattering map. If you go on Google now and you Google mattering map, there are tens of thousands of hits, many more than for me. Sometimes I'm credited with this idea, but sometimes I'm not. There are learned papers being written on the mattering map. It's hmm. been taken up by feminist psychology as one of their theoretical terms. That, you know, so it's, it's a kind of quasi-scientific term now. I found it because I was trying to understand my character and why she was such a fetch, you know, why she was always so unhappy. And this happens, I, I know that you have examples like this. You're, you're, when you're pulled out and you're trying to understand your inhabiting characters that are not yourself, uh, novelists knew about the unconscious long before, you know, the mm -hmm. scientists got around and named it. I mean, it's all through great works of literature. I think that in a very mysterious way, um, it's, it's not just that you have to figure things out because there has to be an internal consistency. So there's a tr tremendous amount of problem solving and figuring out that goes on. It's not just free imagination by any means. Uh, but I think there's actually cognitive content and that there are things that are discovered uh, in the writing of novels that readers discover things and, and writers discover things um, and deep things about human, about human nature. No doubt there is discovery, but there's discovery about things that have been made up. Things that have been made up that correspond to things that are not made, things that are real, but nonetheless, I mean, it seems sort of just triviality to say that the fiction writer writes fiction, doesn't write science, doesn't write philosophy, doesn't write mathematics, writes about what the fiction writer is inventing. Now there are, there are truths to be told about those inventions or the things invented, but that's not the same thing as saying that uh, they're not, they're not invented. Hurrah, we really do disagree here. Really? Real disagreement. Because I think it's, no, it's not I just I can't the, believe it. I don't believe yeah. it. No, no. You're, 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 <laughs> make, totally, you're no, making no. that up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have a couple other questions. Uh, uh, Michael and then... Uh, thank you. I want to pick up on a couple of things Michael said, and that will be questions for all of you, really. Um, uh, and this gets back to the second half of Rebecca's lecture yesterday about intuition and philosophy. And I was struck by what you said, Michael, that 
in writing a novel, um, something you do for a reason and something you do out of intuition. And that combination of reason and intuition is very much like the way Rebecca described the process of philosophy. So it seemed that although you were trying to distance yourself from being a philosopher, and you're not a philosopher, and I'm not a novelist, um, but they seem to be closer, the, the uh, procedures seem to be a bit closer than you were suggesting. And that leads to a second thing I want to pick up on in what you said. You said that um, novelists are more uh, fo uh, foolish uh, than philosophers. And I really beg to differ. Uh, I, I think that philosophers are more foolish than, than novelists, and in part because of what Rebecca said yesterday, too, about intuition, and this is something Harry picked up on a little bit earlier today, too. Um, if Rebecca is right, and if philosophy, if a metaphysical system, is an expression of someone's temperament, uh, their intuition, and then if people have different temperaments and different intuitions, it's kind of, it's really quite foolish to try to argue at people out of their temperaments, out of who they are. There's a famous saying, de gustibus non disputandum, right? You can't argue over matters of taste. And also I think you can't argue over matters of temperament uh, and people's intuitions. And so, so what are we doing when we're doing philosophy? If it's all based on our intuitions fundamentally, and these are things you can't be argued out of, where we're arguing on the basis of intuition is trying to convince people who don't share our intuitions. And what, what's more foolish than that? <laughs> that explains, that might, that might explain why, as Harry said uh, earlier, that philosophical problems never really get solved. Look at the history of philosophical problems. The big problems you will always have with you, like the poor, right? They will always be around the, the philosophical problems. And that might be because of what Rebecca was saying about the role of intuition in philosophy. Um, so uh, th that wasn't a question. I thought there was a way of seeing how some of your comments, Michael, bring philosophy and literature closer together, except for the difference that perhaps philosophy is more foolish uh, uh, than literature. So here's a question that comes out of all this. Um, what's the connection between philosophy and truth? If we're, we're, if we're arguing on the basis of intuition, it's just a matter of temperament, how we see the world, not necessarily on the basis of what's true, but where we have this unargued for starting point. How can we hope to get at the truth in philosophy, and how can we hope to get at the truth in literature? It, that's a very big question, but it, it's, it's prompted by the things that were said here about intuitions today, so the relationship between intuition and truth. Let me say something in response to that. Uh, one thing you can hope to do is to find out what the truth looks like to people with that temperament. And that may be very worth knowing. It may be very helpful to those people. It may help others understand them. So it's not a futile exercise, even if it's not an exercise that is likely to produce the truth. Uh, the other thing I want to say in response to uh, something that Michael and uh, Rebecca said was, you said that um, you feel when you're writing a novel that you're smarter than you really are, or something, you said something the, like that. The, the end part, the novel is smarter than yeah. I am. Yeah. In philosophy, I think we, I don't know if I speak for all philosophers, I certainly speak for myself, we always feel that we're not as smart as we should be, mm. that there's something other than us that we're, that we're after. Uh, there's a certain kind of objectivity that we aim at. Uh, certain kind of impersonality that Rebecca emphasized in her talks. And I am enough of a rationalist to believe that there is such a thing, there is a difference between the right answer to a question and a wrong answer to a question. There is such a thing as getting at the truth about certain things. Maybe there are certain truths that we can't get. 
Maybe there are certain questions that we can't, don't even know how to ask. But uh, I, I don't believe that all this stuff about intuition and temperament means that all answers are equally satisfactory. They're not. Some are good and some are not so good. <clears throat> and, but the question is, are we ever going to be in the position to tell sure. which are the, the good? Yes, so I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, there are answers to these questions. I can't make sense out of the position that says that there uh, aren't any answers to it. But, um, you know, it seems to me that, um, actually, what, um, Harry, what you were saying about uh, the kind of truth that exists in fiction that you make up uh, your character, and then you see what follows from that character. There are truths that follow once you, you know, once you put some content in. There are conclusions to be drawn. Um, I don't completely agree with you. I think that there are other truths, uh, extra literary truths that can be discovered within fiction. But I think it's very true in philosophy, actually. So that for me, for example, to take Spinoza on one hand and take Hume on the other. Um, two perfect philosophers uh, whose intuitions disagree on everything, right? Um, is there, is there uh, brute contingency uh, or not? Is the explanatory fabric of the world complete um, or not? Uh, can, can, can reason tell us how we ought to live or not? Here you have they're these two. They're both Yes, they're both, they're both naturalists, that's true. Um, they're both, although one, I mean even there, the, the, the temperament of one's naturalism is so very different from the temperament of the other's naturalism. One, one is, uh, uh, has a kind of transcendent uh, naturalism, uh, Spinoza, so, so much so that he's often uh, mistaken for a for a mystic. But yeah, there are things that they disagree on. But on, on so many of the of the that they agree on. But on so many of the basic intuitions, they completely disagree. And it's so wonderful to see these two perfect philosophers carrying out their intuitions. To, you know, perfectly, right? The, the, the conclusions are being drawn, and there's tremendous um, uh, value, you know, to, to watching to watching these two perfect philosophers go at their different intuitions, intuitions, and work out the entailments. And that is something that we that can be done in philosophy. But can you get right down to it and say, you know, and, and, and why, why am I a Spinozist and not a Humean? Well, it's something about my temperament. Uh, you know, I certainly would like to believe, as Spinoza does, that the world has an explanation, that there's a final theory of everything, which is so final that it explains why it has to be the final theory of everything. That seems to me very beautiful. Uh, that pleases me aesthetically. Um, and, uh, and, and Hume, although I don't know how to refute anything he says, it's, uh, I don't want it to be like that. It's, it, it affronts me. But yeah, so that is, um, so it's not all foolishness in some sense. But, uh, but yeah, for, for, for a Spinozist and a Humean to come sort of argue who, who's right and who's wrong when, when these animating intuitions are just so different, that would be somehow foolish. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay, just, I'll just briefly. Um, I, I think it's probably a, a bit of a mistake to talk to talk about the writing of fiction as a sort of uni uniform enterprise, mm -hmm. and, as, as if we were all 
doing it for in similar, roughly similar ways for similar reasons. Um, well, for one thing, I, I, I think most novelists are either tops or bottoms. I'm a bottom. <laughs> um, a literary top is somebody like Thomas Mann, Dickens, uh, Don DeLillo, Jonathan Franzen. These are people who have a very distinct and, and, and quite clear view of character, of the culture, and <clears throat> their relationship with you, the reader, is that they <clears throat> aim <clears throat> to insert their worldview and their sense of the truth into every orifice you will offer them. <laughs> As opposed to the bottoms, Virginia Woolf, Proust, Michael Ondaatje, Alice Munro, who are much more about standing next to the reader and saying, here's the world as we both know it. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a variation on a story you, you already know. And I think, I think those are such different undertakings as to be almost, they're both fiction, but, but they're almost separate endeavors. Yeah, yeah. This, this is really uh, sort of a provocative and fascinating insight. Um, unfortunately, the clock is uh, running out on us. And so we're going to have to close up here. I want to thank this fabulous panel, and especially Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, uh, for being with us so generously. And thank you all for coming. This panel was presented in the spring of 2011 in conjunction with the Tanner Lectures on Human Values. The Tanner Lectures are presented annually at select universities and were established by Obert Clark Tanner as a means of contributing to the intellectual and moral life of mankind. The panel was held on March 25, 2011 at the Whitney Humanities Center.